This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It was 1979 in the Andean town of Ambato, Ecuador, when young girls started vanishing at an alarming rate. In May of 1979, young Hortensia Lozado was selling newspapers. Her mother was pregnant and they needed extra money. A friendly man approached Hortensia while she was out. He was new to the area and needed a tour guide as he was lost. She walked with him to the town's outskirts and never returned. One morning, Maria Masabanda Ind sent her daughter to the shop for a few things they needed around the house. She was supposed to buy a bus ticket to return to town, but she never came home. On Valentine's Day, 1980, Carlos Giacome was busy working at his office. He was a well-respected businessman in Embato, owning a town bakery and having an office about 15 blocks away. His nine-year-old daughter, Ivanova, often visited him during the day with something to eat. It was 11 o'clock in the morning and there was no sign of her. Carlos was starting to worry. Hours passed without a trace of his daughter. She was a good girl and certainly not one to go somewhere without telling him. Once the realization hit that she was likely in danger, he frantically put up flyers, alerting the entire country of her disappearance. She was a very pretty young girl, leading him to believe that she might have been kidnapped and taken to another country. 22 days later, on March 8th, her body was discovered nearby, in a wooden shack on a farm close to the town. Bodies started turning up in the rural areas outside the town, some of which were identified as the missing girls. They had all been raped and strangled. It was the morning of Ivanova's funeral, and Embato's Plaza Urbina was already bustling. Vendors were preparing their stalls for the day, and customers were beginning to appear. Nobody paid much attention to a man in the corner selling random trinkets. That man visited Carlina Ramon's stand, where she sold cooked food. He seemed interested in what she was making, peering into her full pot of rice and checking out the meat she was frying in a pan. She noticed his gaze kept turning to her daughter, who was around 11 years old. He tried to engage with her, smiling and making conversation. Unsettled, she told her mother that he wanted her to go with him. Carlina realized that the man visiting her stall didn't care about what she was making, he just wanted to speak to her daughter. She called out across the plaza, shouting for help catching him. An enraged crowd chased after the man and wrestled him to the ground. He pleaded with them to let him go, telling them that they had the wrong person, that he had a good heart and could never hurt anyone. Nobody believed him and the group formed a circle around him, making sure he had no way of escaping. The man was Pedro Lopez, who would soon be titled the Monster of the Andes. This is Monsters.
Pedro Lopez was born in Santa Isabel, Colombia on October 8, 1948. He was the seventh of 13 children born to his mother, Benilda Lopez de Castaneda. His father, Medardo Reyes, died when his mother was three months pregnant. At the time, she said she could have died of shock and fear that her distress would hurt her unborn baby. Medardo was part of the country's right-wing party during La Violencia, Colombia's civil war. He was shot by an opposing mob when he was at a local grocery store. The war began in 1948, and its catalyst is believed to be the assassination of Jorge Alicia Gaitan, a liberal candidate for the 1949 presidential race. The term La Violencia came from the violent methods of killing and torture. Gruesome acts like dismembering, beheading, and maiming became commonplace. Colombia's troubled times were the backdrop of Pedro's childhood. Living conditions were poor and communities were terrorized. The country's murder rate was the highest in the world, and most of the civil war was fought in the countryside, in places like Santa Isabel, where Pedro lived as a child. The family moved to El Espinal when he was five years old. His mother wanted a safer place to raise her children and she would be able to make more money there. Pedro was not always a reliable narrator and occasionally made false claims about parts of his life. Benilda said that she raised her son in a loving environment and described him as a gentle and polite child. She encouraged him when he said he wanted to become a teacher. He painted a different picture of his childhood, claiming that Benilda was physically abusive toward him and his siblings. She was a sex worker and a stream of men frequented their home to see her. She was attacked by these men, some that disputed her pricing and others doing it simply because they could. There are two theories about how Pedro ended up living on the streets at eight years old. In an interview, Benilda told a story saying he ran away to Bogota. She was convinced it was another political killing, sure that the same people who murdered Pedro's father had come for him. Devastated, she visited a fortune teller in a neighboring town who she hoped could tell her where he was, crying the whole way there. Pedro's story was that his mother kicked him out of the house when he was caught fondling his little sister. She banished him, telling him to never return and defend for himself. He admitted to the molestation, saying he groped his sister's breast and propositioned her for sex. He justified his actions by claiming his mother's terrible influence as a sex worker made him do it. Whichever story is true might not be clear, but the fact remains that his life on the streets began when he was eight years old. He described himself as an alert child that had an innocent mind, scrambling for food by digging through trash and dumpsters. Respite came in the form of a concerned man that approached him on the streets and offered him a warm bed. Pedro willingly followed the stranger, but rather than being taken to his home, he found himself lured into an abandoned building. Inside the hidden area, Pedro was sexually assaulted by the stranger who discarded him and sent him back to the streets. Police were overrun by the country's high crime rates, meaning it wasn't an option to go to them. Besides, he was a street kid. Even if he did tell them, would they believe him? Losing his trust in strangers, he started to hide away during the day and only came out at night, feeling protected in the darkness. He would scour landfills and garbage for food and then scurry away before the sun could rise. Years later, in police custody, he confessed that if he looked at the night sky and saw a star, he would know that God was protecting him. 
he moved to Bogota and became one of the city's thousands of gamines, meaning street children. They were among the lowest on the social ladder and overlooked by the rest of society. Joining a street gang gave him the protection that he sought. They would commit petty crimes and smoke basuco. Basuco is a form of cocaine mixed with brick dust and chalk. It has a paste-like consistency and its ingredients include ethanol, lead, sulfuric acid, chloroform, kerosene, and benzoic acid. It is much more potent than other forms of cocaine and acts as a stimulant that increases energy, alertness, talkativeness, and confidence. These psychological effects can also cause dramatic mood swings, paranoia, and delusions. Pedro was quickly addicted to the substance. At the time, thousands of boys between the ages of 5 and 15 lived on the streets. Their lifestyle was unruly, as their behavior was often lawless. Child street gangs stuck together and formed strong bonds. They defended one another, learning how to survive without any help from adults. Violence was routine for them, especially when searching for places to sleep, sometimes fighting rival gangs with belts and knives to get a spot. Most were untrusting of anyone outside of their group. They knew how to survive through stealing, capturing, and escaping. They wore rolled rags as they begged on the streets, but their torn clothes rarely combated the cold Colombian nights. An American couple encountered Pedro, who was an emaciated young boy living in his own filth. They couldn't stand to see the sorry state that he was in and took him home with them. After spending years on the street, he was somewhere he could let down his guard. The couple enrolled him in an orphan school, hoping he'd make friends and be able to relate to the people around him there. Life became stable for him, at least for a while. He was fed, clothed, and had a safe place to sleep. However, his new school was not the protected place that the American couple intended for him. Some reports state that a teacher developed an interest in him, leading him to being molested shortly after starting school. Other accounts say he ran away with a middle-aged female teacher who wanted sex from him. Either way, he ran away from the American couple and returned to the streets. On his way out, he stole money from the school. He supported himself by stealing cars and selling them to a local chop shop. At 18 years old, police caught and arrested him for stealing and he was sentenced to seven years in prison. Two days into his sentence, Pedro was sexually assaulted by at least two inmates. This time, he snapped. Years of fantasizing about revenge against those who had hurt him led him to fashion a knife-like weapon out of a kitchen utensil. He visited each of his attackers individually and slit their throats. It's disputed if he received a further sentence, and authorities claimed that the move was in self-defense. Inmates were frightened of him and left him alone for the rest of his time in prison. The prison slangs are the first known killings he committed, although the inmates did not fit the profile of his later victims. While the rest of his time in prison was far less intense than his first few days, he developed an interest in the pornographic magazines being passed around. He wanted to satiate his sexual appetite, but knew better than to turn to other inmates. Women didn't sexually attract him. In fact, they made him feel sick, reminding him of what had happened to his mother. He knew his interests lay elsewhere. He was released and around 1978 moved to Ayacucho, Peru. 
Ayacucho is southeast of Lima, situated in the Andes, in a sunny valley with rugged terrain. There was an abundance of young girls around him. He liked Andean girls, describing their eyes as innocent and revealing in their trusting nature. On at least one occasion, he contemplated abducting a tourist. He noticed a family walking around the market with a young blonde girl. She clasped her parents' hands, not leaving their side. He kept watching, waiting for the moment they took their eyes off of her or she wandered away, but the moment never came. He made the decision that it was wise to avoid kidnapping any child that would be high-profile. Girls, mainly indigenous, were going missing at an alarming rate, leaving surrounding communities distressed and in fear. They would vanish without a trace, being coaxed away from their parents or disappearing when running errands. Confident that his strategy meant he wouldn't be caught, Pedro continued to seek his prey. It's believed that he had killed over 100 Peruvian girls within the short time that he was in the country. He set his eyes on a nine-year-old girl who matched the profile of his preferred victims, but was caught as he tried to lure her away from the crowd. A tribe of people local to Ayacucho captured him, sure that he was behind the other girls' disappearances in the region. They were going to make him pay. He was stripped naked before they tortured him. They dug a deep pit in the sand and threw him inside. He was buried up to his neck when they poured syrup all over him to attract bullet ants. The commotion caught the attention of an American missionary who felt it was her duty to intercede. She tried to convince them not to commit murder and preached about finding different means of resolution. The tribe was very reluctant to let Pedro go, but she promised to immediately turn him in to authorities. He was tied up and put into her jeep. It's unknown if she took him to the police outpost, though he would later say she never took him there. Instead, she drove him to the Colombian border and took pity on him, letting him go free. Some reports say that she did turn him in, but there was no evidence of him kidnapping the girl, so they had no reason to take him into custody. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Pedro didn't tend to stay in the same place for too long and set his eyes on Ecuador. Conditions were different in the smaller neighboring country. He was quickly taken with the girls there, who he described to police as being more gentle and trusting and more innocent. They didn't seem to exhibit the same weariness of strangers as Colombian and Peruvian girls. Similarly to when he was in Peru, girls began going missing at an alarming rate. Once again, communities were terrified while parents frantically searched for their daughters, begging anyone with information to come forward. Those with the means offered financial rewards to anyone who had information about their children's whereabouts. Others put ads in local newspapers and alerted everyone around them. Even though girls of similar ages and ethnicities were missing, the idea of it being a serial killer seemed far-fetched. It was commonly believed that the girls were abducted for prostitution or slavery. Ecuadorians lost their trust in one another and grew weary of those around them. Police told some of the missing girls' parents that their daughters ran away because they failed the school year and were too embarrassed to come home. 
There were rumors that they might have been trafficked, and the police often had relationships with the traffickers so they would be unwilling to act. The victims' family members begged authorities to help them find their girls, but were seldom taken seriously. Some of them were even blamed for their daughters' disappearances, being met with claims that if they'd watched their children more closely, they wouldn't have gone missing. Then, the bodies started appearing. In 1979, a river close to the town of Embato overflowed and disturbed the land. The bodies of four young girls washed up on the river's banks, confirming that something very sinister was happening and disproving many of the initial theories. Attention around the case grew, but it was the abduction of businessman Carlos Giacomi's daughter that gained the attention of authorities. He used his influence to let the whole country know what happened, and finally the case received the attention it deserved. When her body was uncovered a few weeks later, it was in a similar condition to the bodies that washed ashore. She had been strangled and sexually assaulted. It seemed impossible to catch the killer. There was no evidence of who it could be, minus the similarity in the murders. Nobody knew what he looked like to give police a sketch, and the fact that he killed his victims by strangulation meant there was no weapon to find. And then, on that March morning in Embato, locals caught him trying to lure Carlina Ramon's daughter. The terrified, heartbroken community found their tormentor and would not let him go, no matter how many times he pledged his innocence that day. His reign was over. At least, that's what they thought. Locals restrained him while they waited for authorities, who immediately took him into custody. He refused to cooperate with interrogators who tried to strong-arm him into a confession. Even when they applied force, he was silent. One officer threatened to kill him if he didn't come clean. It seemed that the more that officers threatened him, the less he wanted to speak. Aware that they needed to change their approach, Captain Pastor Cordova asked all of the police officers to leave so that he could interrogate Pedro alone. He was their superior, but his approach differed significantly from the other officers. He took an interest in who Pedro was as a person, rather than fixating on his potential crimes. They spoke about his feelings and eventually pivoted to the missing girls. Captain Cordova earned Pedro's trust. Pedro even referred to him as Papa, relishing in the somewhat paternal figure showing interest in him. Cordova was captain at the time, and, as the officer that Pedro trusted, he elicited a confession out of the killer. Authorities were not prepared for the story that Pedro had to tell. They knew that young girls were going missing, but nothing could have prepared them for his trail of destruction. He recounted his seven years traveling between Colombia, Peru, and Ecuador. During that time, he estimated that he'd killed 300 girls. Police were stunned. Pedro was odd but unsuspecting. How could somebody so seemingly inconspicuous be capable of such evil? He was a contender for the world's most prolific serial killer and he went undetected for years. Pedro's capture was soon broadcast across the airwaves, and with such a shocking story, the public demanded more information. Most people were disgusted by him, screaming die at him when he passed by in a car. But to Pedro, it was attention at a magnitude that he never dreamed of receiving. He basked in his crime's interest, developing a celebrity-like persona while he was interviewed. There's video footage of him philosophizing about life and death. He romanticized dying, 
particularly from the perspective of an observer. He spoke about witnessing a person's last moments, during which they'd lose their senses and become unable to see, speak, or hear. Their emotions would fade, and as they fell into death's darkness, everything he did to them would fade as well. It took the girls 5 to 15 minutes to die. Pedro stayed with them for a long time afterward, sometimes having to strangle them all over again before they breathed their last breaths. So that they could have company, he tended to bury multiple girls in a single spot. Then he would visit them, play games, and have tea parties. Pedro hoped to be immortalized for his crimes, so he asked a reporter if his actions would make history. The reporter quickly confirmed that it would, to which he wanted to know if the story would be remembered. He agreed to take police to the children's grave sites, which were scattered across the country. A six-week search for the victims' bodies began. Pedro led police across 11 Ecuadorian provinces. He had to be dressed as a police officer to avoid potentially being recognized, as the public was so disgusted by his actions that they wanted to lynch him. The grave sites proved what he had done, and he walked around them without remorse or compassion. He was casual, like friends on a walk, enjoying the companionship he felt with the group, while officers found his indifference jarring. It took tremendous restraint for authorities to even be in his presence. Most of them wanted to see him punished and even hoped to get revenge on him themselves. They needed to find the bodies and return them to the anguished families, so they maintained his trust by treating him like he was one of their comrades. After giving him tobacco, beer, and food, his guard was down enough to continue the search. There were a few times when he flipped and asserted his innocence. They risked him backing out of giving them further evidence and had to handle him carefully. Investigators went to gravesite after gravesite in what Pedro treated as a sick tour across his travels around the country. He remembered all of the details of what he had done, giving in-depth descriptions about where he had taken the girls, how he chose those places, the dates and times that he killed, and what the girls looked like when he approached them. They were not just buried in Ambato. There were many shallow graves in the surrounding areas, including near Tungurahua, a tall volcano surrounded by a mountainous area. In the town of Salcedo, he led the group to one of his shallow graves where he took the skull of one of his victims and placed it under his arm like a trophy. He thought it was the perfect opportunity for a picture, but Captain Cordova intercepted, refusing to give him his moment. Hortensia Lozado was one of the many bodies unearthed, the girl selling newspapers when he asked her to be his tour guide. Once he coaxed her away from her spot, they went beneath the tall Fakoa Bridge. After he murdered her, he put her in one of his usual shallow graves in an area beneath the bridge that was rarely frequented. He covered her in the newspapers she sold. By the time he took the police there, her bones had corroded and her decomposed skeleton was in pieces. The family identified her by the dress that her skeleton still wore. People in the community gathered, screaming justice, 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 and throwing rocks at investigators. They wanted Pedro to pay for what he had done and had no qualms about taking matters into their own hands if police showed him mercy. Many expressed their hopes to lynch him and might have succeeded if the police didn't intercede, even if they shared the town's rage. He had more sites to take them to and their grim search was not over. The investigation brought to light the method that Pedro followed. 
He had a ritualistic style of killing that involved rape, murder, and then often necrophilia. He'd pick his prey a few days in advance, typically at local markets. At first, he'd watch over them, picking up on their habits and how they interacted with family members. He paid close attention to the moments the girls went unwatched and how trusting their nature was. This process is how he avoided kidnapping by force. He didn't like to introduce such violent methods early on. Instead, he would lure them away from any adults around, offering them trinkets or asking for directions. Once they trusted him, he'd take them for a walk away from the town. It wasn't a forceful act, but his goal was to get them as far away as possible from anyone who could hear them scream. Out of earshot of any passers-by, he would begin by sexually assaulting his victims. Typically, this part would take place at night when the little boy who once feared the daylight grew into the man that basked in the dawn. He kept them alive until sunrise, considering it was a waste to kill someone in the dark when he couldn't see the life drain from their eyes. It wasn't over for his victims yet, though, as he practiced necrophilia and put them in shallow graves, making it easier for him to come back and visit. He often went back to see them before they started to decompose. He would dig up the bodies for sick gatherings like what he described as tea parties. The investigation ended with Pedro confessing to 57 murders, the number of bodies he unearthed for authorities. Investigators knew they had barely uncovered half of his victims. He was charged with 110 counts of murder. Pedro's decision to go to Ecuador was likely far more strategic than it first appeared. Colombia's prison sentences were far harsher, and Ecuador didn't have a death penalty. Aware that he might find himself in prison once more if caught, he would serve far less time in Ecuador. The country also did not offer consecutive prison sentences. A killer could be convicted of one murder or a thousand and still be given a 16-year maximum sentence. Citizens knew justice wouldn't be served if he got out of prison in his late 40s, and he would be young enough to continue his reign of terror by the time he was released. He pleaded guilty to the murders of 57 girls on July 1, 1981. As feared, he was sentenced to 16 years in prison. He had no hesitation about discussing his crimes. Declaring himself guilty, he spoke about what he had done, trying to go into detail but often being stopped from being too graphic out of respect for his victims and their families. His perception of his victims changed frequently. At times, he was cold, callous, and indifferent towards the girls. He painted himself as the actual victim, detailing that he had become a killer because he had suffered physical and sexual abuse as a child. Acknowledging that he took the innocence of many young girls, he pushed the significance of his own innocence being taken from him. In many ways, it could be interpreted that he saw the struggles of his childhood to be far more damaging than anything he could do to anyone else. He said he took other children's innocence because his was stolen from him. There were other times, though, when he referred to the girls as his dolls, who he had to save from an evil world and poverty. Killing the impoverished meant wiping them out and taking away members of society that were perceived as insignificant. Perhaps the person he felt society had written off as insignificant the most was him. He barely had any social recognition until he was in custody, particularly during childhood. In prison, he started to blame someone else, Jorge Patino. 
Jorge was an alternative personality of Pedro's, who he claimed threatened to kill him if he didn't kill others. He went as far as to deny that he ever played a part in the murders, clarifying with reporters that asked him questions about the crimes that he was not the killer and acted under duress of Jorge. A psychological evaluation determined that he was a sociopath who was incapable of knowing right and wrong and couldn't feel compassion for his actions. He exhibited signs of being unable to understand or empathize with other people's pain or feelings. Despite touting that he felt such intense compassion for his victims that he wanted to protect them from the world's evil. One theory is that he perceived sex as something violent. His conceptualization was that somebody had to have the upper hand and didn't consider the concept of consent. To him, it was a destructive act. It was clear that he didn't care about the suffering of his victims, and when he spoke about their last moments while he had his hands around their necks, he made it seem more of a seductive process than cold-blooded murder. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. After serving some time in Ambato, Pedro was moved to a prison in Quito. He was kept in a wing for rapists and murderers and appeared to maintain a much lower profile than the last time he was in jail. He spent his days scribbling his thoughts in a journal and smoking basuco, like he did as a child. He'd carve coins with an angel on one side and a devil on the other. He seldom interacted with other prisoners or guards, trying not to attract attention to himself as there was a $25,000 bounty on his head that relatives of the victims put together. Aware that he'd be a free man before he turned 50, he was patient. His good behavior knocked two years off of his sentence, and after 14 years, in 1994, he was a free man. He didn't hold back his excitement, loudly celebrating as he exited the prison. The public was furious about his early release, and being granted grace for good behavior was an insult. The governor of the Ambato jail, Victor Lascano, stressed the danger that the country's children were in once he was free. There was no rehabilitation for someone like him, and no community was safe with Pedro back on the streets. Unable to bear seeing him live as a free man, the victim's parents took the situation into their own hands. One mother said she wanted to break him into pieces, to make him suffer the pain and fear that her daughter did. One victim's father worked with the families, friends, and neighbors to devise a plan. They collected wood and plotted his kidnapping. Once he left the prison, they would abduct him and take him back to their village, where they would burn him alive. The community's plan for revenge was foiled, though, when Pedro's legal status in Ecuador arose. An hour after his release, Pedro was taken into the custody of immigration officials. He was a foreigner in Ecuador without paperwork, making him an illegal alien. The Colombian judicial system had much harsher sentences, and hope was reignited that justice would be served. Pedro was driven to the Colombian border and handed to authorities. Convinced that he would start killing again if he was released, the Colombian Administrative Department of Security, also known as DAS, was unwilling to let him out of their custody. 
Prosecutors searched for cases similar to those reported in Ecuador and Peru. Pedro's ritualized manner of assaulting and killing his victims made for a clear pattern that was becoming easier to identify. They found a case of a girl that disappeared from the town of Espinal, where he once lived. It happened two decades before he was deported back to the country, but it matched his other crimes. The victim was a young girl who went missing in a rural area outside the city. Her mother realized that she was gone and searched all over for her. Later that same day, her body was found and her mother had to use her clothes to identify her. Authorities had enough evidence to lock him up. Most wanted him dead, but again, he dodged that punishment. In 1995, he was declared insane and institutionalized in a psychiatric facility. There was abundant evidence that he was severely mentally disturbed, from the trauma of his childhood to confessing his brutal crimes. He was already a diagnosed sociopath, but now he was in another country with different procedures. A prison psychiatrist deemed him sane, despite all the evidence that would scream otherwise. Many believe that Pedro used his charm to convince the psychiatrist that he was misunderstood and not insane. Although the psychiatrist should have been able to identify that he was exhibiting one of the classic behaviors of a sociopath, manipulation, they seemed to miss or disregard the signs altogether. He likely gave the psychiatrist the same version of events that he gave everyone else. He was a victim that lived in poverty his entire life, not knowing where he'd get his next meal from or where he would sleep that night. Nobody protected him, he couldn't trust anyone, and he was sexually abused many times. While it's hard to know what happened when he met with the psychiatrist, their time together ended with him being cleared to be reintegrated into society. His bail was set at 50 US dollars, and his release had two conditions. The first was that he continued psychiatric treatment indefinitely, and the other was that he would visit a judge once a month. These conditions were put into place to monitor him while he reintegrated into society. However, Pedro Lopez was never ready to be released. It's well documented that many serial killers have complicated relationships with their mothers. Ed Gaines' adoration of his mother turned to obsession. She isolated him, insisting that all women, minus herself, were evil. He was 44 years old when she died, and he still hadn't left the family home. His desire to find a substitute for her led him down an unimaginably twisted path. Charles Manson's mother was an alcoholic that continuously rejected her son. She was absent and spent time in prison when he was young. Then, after she served her sentence, she continued to spend her evenings drinking. Ed Kemper overheard his mother talking to his father, referring her son as a real weirdo. She was abusive and made him sleep in a locked basement, frightened that he'd lose his temper on his sisters and hurt them. He was never shown maternal love. The details of Pedro's relationship with his mother are hard to fully understand as they have different recollections of his childhood. He described her as a cruel woman that was physically and emotionally abusive. He said she treated him in ways that nobody should ever treat another person, which seems rich coming from him. According to him, she disregarded him and he blamed her for everything that happened in his life after he left her house. She contested his accounts, claiming to be a loving mother that did the best for her children. When Pedro was released from the psychiatric hospital, he returned to his mother's house after not seeing her for decades. 
when he got there, he demanded that she kneel on the ground so he could bless her, but she refused. She told him that, as a mother, she was the one that should bless him, not the other way around. He half-heartedly obeyed and got down on one knee. After the blessing, he said he was there to talk about his inheritance. Still living in poverty, she could barely feed herself, let alone give him money. All that she owned was her bed and her armchair. Pedro grabbed them from her room and put them in front of the house with a for sale sign. She watched him in tears. She asked what he'd do if nobody bought them. He said he'd set them on fire if that were the case. Either way, she would never see her bed or chair again. At this point, she was much older. Her hair was white, she hunched forward, and her bones were weak. She could barely lower herself to the concrete floor of her house, let alone sleep on it. Someone came along and bought both items. Pedro pocketed the money and left. It would be the last time anyone confirmed seeing Pedro Lopez. He disregarded the terms of his psychiatric release, never receiving ongoing treatment or following through with his monthly report to a judge. The public was very critical of the government and how authorities handled the girl's disappearances. He averaged at least three murders a week, something that officers could have acted upon far quicker than they did. Family members expressed how they felt that laws were created only to protect the wealthy and that it was time to reform them to protect all citizens equally. Pressure on the government led to Ecuador extending its maximum sentence for murder to 25 years. In 2002, a young girl was murdered in Colombia and her injuries reflected that of Pedro's other victims. Interpol, the International Criminal Police Organization, released an advisory for his rearrest shortly after the killing. Following his release, communities flooded local authorities with potential sightings. Radio and television stations also received frequent phone calls from people looking to warn those around them that he might have been in their area. Colombian, Peruvian, and Ecuadorian police carried a picture of him in their pockets to confirm his identity if he crossed their paths. In 2006, the Guinness Book of World Records named him the most prolific serial killer but quickly removed the title for fear that it would glorify his crimes and encourage other murderers. Theories circulate about where he could be now. His victims' families never hid how much they loathed him. They might have caught and killed him, bringing the justice they felt cheated out of by authorities in the legal system. He could be scaling his beloved Andes, taking advantage of their rocky, mountainous, and partially rural surroundings. His mother spoke openly about his crimes after he disappeared. She said that she would know if he was gone because God would find a way of telling her. She said at this point she knew in her soul that his life hadn't ended yet. If he is still alive, he's in his early to mid-70s. The number of people that he killed will never be known. Most believe it's at least 300, but if he's survived the past two decades, it could be many more. Of all of the things he said while in custody, perhaps the most telling is that he made it clear that if released, he would kill again. Because Pedro Lopez had no problem with other people knowing that he was a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. 
This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.